Welcome to the Easel Studio Podcast. This is the audio version of an episode that was originally broadcast on easel.eu. If you wish to watch rather than listen, go to Easel Campus to see all the episodes on demand. Good evening, Easel friends. Welcome to the Easel Studio, your weekly hepatology broadcast news. In today's episode, which is the eighth episode of the third season, we'll be talking about uh, transplant oncology, which is a field that is moving really very fast. Uh, the title, in fact, of today's episode is uh, Transplanting Patients with Cancer, Is There a Limit? Today we have three distinguished guests. Uh, they do not need any kind of presentation if you deal with liver transplant in, in oncology but maybe some of you guys are not familiar with it. So I would like to introduce you to Paul Dacline. He's professor of surgery and director of the Department of Transplant Medicine at the University of Oslo. And I really think he can be defined as the pioneer of liver transplant and colorectal metastasis. Vincenzo Mazzaferro, he's full professor of surgery at the Department of Oncology at the University of Milan. And he's head of the oncology group, uh, hepatoncology group at the uh, Istituto Nazionale Tumori in Milan. He has a long, very long love story with Easel. He contributed to the guidelines and achieved an award from Easel itself. And we have Gonzalo Sapizucin, which is an associate professor at the Division of uh, uh, General Surgery at UHN in Toronto. Um, he's a very active and productive mind in all the fields of transplant oncology. And when I asked him his affiliation, he said, I'm a soldier, just say I'm a soldier. So thank you for being here, all of you. The symposium will focus on where we are now on transplant eligibility criteria and where we are going, what's the direction we are taking, especially when we are talking about development of future clinical trials. I would like the symposium to be as friendly as possible. So I would like you to interact with each other. And uh, I would really like to start with Professor Lina. Um, Professor, you have helped really in developing one of the most recent indications to liver transplantation, which is liver transplant for colorectal metastasis, which was once an absolute contraindication. Given the very high availability of donor graphs in Norway, you have practically challenged this dogma. And now we know we can transplant patients with uh, metastasis from colon rectal disease with a five-year survival that goes far beyond 50%. And we know that if these patients are treated with just chemo, the five-year survival is 10%. In the patient journey, can you please help us to set the frame of liver transplant with respect to surgery or with respect to chemotherapy? Please, Professor Lina. Yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity to, to interact with the great friends and colleagues um, uh, around this exciting team. Now, um, if we look at the way uh, colorectal limits are treated today, it's essentially uh, um, a sorting in resectable and non-resectable disease. So, um, uh, clearly, what uh, is, is, is very determining is whether they have good effect on chemotherapy or not. Uh, and I, clear, I think, think that is the most clear um, way to distinguish people that, should, uh, that we only can offer palliation as, um, 
uh, as opposed to, to patients where you, you might have a curative potential. Uh, and the, the, exper the experience so far is, uh, is based on um, in patients with non-resectable uh, liver metastases. But as we all know, the term resectability is not really uh, very well defined. And uh, there is huge variation between individual surgeons and individual centers. So, so I think uh, the, uh, we should think about uh, transplantability in patients that have extremely good performance status, are fairly young, and have a higher tumor load. Um, uh, meaning that they have, uh, for example, a very high number of lesions. The majority of these patients will not be resectable, and a high proportion of them will be very marginally resectable. But in order to determine whether they can be transplant candidates, we need uh, quite a lot of observation time. So they, they, they have to be treated in a regular protocol way, for let's say at least the first six months, uh, preferably 12 months. But during this time, uh, you, uh, one can contemplate uh, transplant in very selected cases. And I, I, I might uh, come back to uh, central elements in patient selection. Um, but as I said, and that's maybe a discussion for the future, I think Strict technical resectability is a blind street. Arguing about whether it's resectable in one center or not is not interesting because we should not look at technical resectability, but biological resectability. And Andre Bismuth once told me, uh, because uh, he has a very active and innovative and bright mind, and he said, of course, these are clearly resectable patients. The only thing is that they require a total hepatectomy. And that's very well put. That's very well put. Okay. So aside from uh, morphological criteria and resectability criteria, you said that biological factors are uh, very important and to keep in mind. Is there yes. anything we can do to capture the biological features of these tumors? Yeah, uh, so based on the first uh, study we published in 2013, you know, that was a pilot trail with very heterogeneous population. And you, you cannot really get the optimal outcome from that kind of population. But what, what we should get is the feasibility, is it safe? And the answer is clearly yes. The other thing we were able to produce is, uh, uh, is robust factors clearly linked to outcome. And this, uh, based on, on uh, the factors um, preoperative um, CEA value, uh, size of the largest lesion, response to chemo, and uh, interval from diagnosis to transplant, all these factors were negatively correlated to uh, survival. And we uh, made a scoring system termed the Oslo score based on this. And... Um, this is clearly related to the biology of the disease. So uh, this trial has recently been published, the 10-year data, and that's all the data there are observed 
survival. And um, when we look at patients having an Arsenal score of zero to one, meaning just one, uh, none or just one of these negative factors, you see an observed survival at five years of 75% and observed survival at 10 years of 50%, which is quite uh, unexpected in, uh, in non-resectable disease. So clearly that is, uh, is a link to survival. We also know a, quite a, um, a number of factors that should be avoided. Uh, in general, right-sided primaries seem to do far worse than left-sided. And we, so our collective experience uh, with that is, is uh, quite bad. So we currently don't accept right-sided. Um, and BRAF mutation we uh, don't include. And uh, if we have patients with N2 disease of the primary, we try to add more observation time and prolonged chemo to make sure that they don't have disseminated disease. Okay, lastly, so please. Yeah, lastly, the single best parameter. Um, really picturing the tumor biology is probably uh, the PET investigation and namely mm -hmm. what we call the metabolic tumor volume. So if you look at the PET scans and enhancement in the liver, you can, um, you can calculate the enhancement that is at least 40% of the maximal value and, and uh, by the computer software calculate these volumes and you add all the lesions together and you get an MTV value per patient. So as long as this value is below 70, the outcomes are extremely good. Whereas in patients having uh, higher than 70 cc's in MTV, you have worse outcome. And in fact, this is true also for other treatment modalities of colorectal cancer. So you find the same in, in chemotherapy from start of chemotherapy. You find the same in liver section. So we have, uh, there are publications out there. But uh, very interestingly, the, the MTV cutoff value is 10 times lower if you look at chemotherapy and liver section. Uh, suggesting that the tolerability of tumor volume in the liver is much better if you, you do transplant. Gonzalo, is, the, is that the same you're doing in Toronto? I mean, is that the same feeling you have? Yeah, thanks. Uh, and again, a pleasure to be here with, with, with you all. So, yeah, I mean, we obviously have been following, uh, you know, PALDAG's uh, protocol with some uh, modifications. I think one of the challenges... I mean, it's always been been well known that one of the you know um, things that that Paldac has been doing is that they have a lot of organs in Oslo, which is not a the reality we have in in you know many places in North America, including in Toronto. So the only way we've been doing we've been able to do this is with living donors, and uh, you know we we have a pretty large living donor program, and and we've taken advantage of that. And you know there's some advantages of living donation in this setting, which is obviously you you know it's it's faster. Um, uh, we don't want to expedite these patients, but once they fulfilled, you know, a, a stability for a year, it's it's easier to to book them into transplant with a planned surgery to be able to stop the chemotherapy and then just have a, a planned operation. Uh, it has other challenges, obviously, mainly related to the donor, but 
Yeah, we've been we've been doing similar uh, uh, similar protocol. We've done seven cases so far with living donation. Some of them are uh, almost four years out and doing well, and actually kind of replicating uh, the results in uh, uh, in Oslo. So Oslo. definitely very exciting. And we are talking about donors. Don't you think that also uh, marginal donor graphs could be a good option for this kind of indication? I mean, I think that's, it, it may be true, but it may be controversial too, right? Like we know that ischemia reperfusion, you know, bad ischemia reperfusion may affect tumor recurrence. You know, the data is mainly on hepatocellular carcinoma. So yes, from a kind of management of the list perspective, I think we'll have to learn more if actually marginal donors and a bad ischemia reperfusion post-transplant may affect uh, recurrence post-transplant uh, with colorectal. So I wouldn't, you know, I think that, as I was saying, for sure, from a list management perspective, it's a very good option. I would be a little cautious of just, just using the worst organs for these patients. Okay. Quote, unquote. Pro Professor Line, um, actually, mm -hmm. uh, Gonzalo talked about recurrence, and we know that recurrence and the pattern of recurrence change dramatically the survival of these patients. Can you comment on that? And Professor Mataferro, can you do too? Yeah, so... so Clearly, we are dealing with metastatic disease, uh, and we know from um, surgical treatment of colorectal metastasis in general that, yeah, the, the, in fact, the majority of patients recur. At least if you're talking about patients with, uh, with um, more than four or five lesions in liver. So uh, in the, uh, recurrence is still a problem. Uh, we have shown that improved selection uh, will reduce the rate of recurrence. But uh, the peculiar thing is that the majority of recurrences are lung recurrences, in fact, up against uh, 70%. Whereas the, in, after liver resection, you have about half of the patients recurring in the liver and half of them recurring uh, at multiple sites. And and um, the majority of the lung recurrences in transplant patients are few. They are extremely slow growing. And in fact, we have also demonstrated in a separate study that the growth rate of these metastases are not different from a control group that is not immunosuppressed. And um, so, so uh, the majority of the patients in our setting uh, has been offered lung resections. And some of them have had multiple lung resection. In the latest publication I refer to uh, about the Zika-1 trial, all the survivors had recurrence. And all of them have undergone lung resections. And these patients are now 10 years out or more. Um, and in fact, this, this opens up a whole new reality for us because there is no good correlation between disease-free survival and overall survival in this setting. So if we are going to, to assess the efficacy of treatment, we really have to look at the overall survival because the disease-free survival uh, might be equal in patients uh, that have uh, treatable uh, lung recurrence and more devastating multisite recurrence. Professor Mazzaferro, would you like to add something on this comment about uh, yeah. modality of progression and recurrence? Yeah, just a single observation. 
according to the our experience we doing uh, following the, the protocols and, and the experience of uh, the group in Oslo um, what uh, is a probably a very challenging area is those uh, uh, resection procedure that uh, are very commonly attempted in uh, liver surgery uh, in you know I would say complex uh, 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 operation requiring liver regeneration, portal vein embolization, uh, multiple uh, multi-step procedure. Those area, those patients in that area are, uh, you know, very prone to resection, to recurrence. And uh, uh, despite a big effort and a large, also a significant morbidity and mortality. So in what is happening in our uh, place that I would like to to Pagdal to comment on this, is that we are thinking of transplantation for such a patient, trying to move borderline complex resection indication, so somehow resectable operation, into the transplant area. Professor, yeah, I'm afraid your answer has to be short because we are running out of time. So right. please, so, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I think that's very well captured, and so, um, this is what I mean, um, uh, the, the distinction between technical resectability and biological resectability. Uh, so I think uh, a significant proportion of those uh, patients uh, probably would have a great treatment benefit from transplant as opposed to resection. And in fact, we published a paper on this uh, in, uh, in the Transplant International where we just did a pilot trial on a consecutive database. And if you look at high tumor load patients and where both the resection cases and the transplant cases satisfy uh, reasonably stringent transplant criteria, the, the difference in tra versus, uh, transplant versus resection is 70% survival versus 16 which is uh, is uh, if it's if true it's it's uh, certainly something that has, should have a clinical consequences so we so we need to probably uh, make prospective uh, randomized trials uh, sometime in the future maybe a very short comment here if i could just just to 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 ask for the flip of the coin I guess that's completely true and I don't disagree. I guess the question is why not resect some of these patients and transplant them when and if they recur only in the liver? Because I mean, from a biological standpoint, actually those patients that only recur and recur and recur in the liver are probably the best candidates for transplantation. So I would kind of just challenge that maybe we should resect them and then wait for recurrence. Anyway. I think we can end this first part here. Uh, saying that this may be thought for future trials and future investigations. I'm very sorry, but we have to move on. I would like to thank Professor Lina. I know he's got one foot in the OR for a very complex case. So in case they do call you, I would like to thank you and, uh, and say goodbye. Yeah. Um, thank you. Ma if you manage to stay, even better. Uh, I'd like to move on with hepatocellular carcinoma. Professor Matsuferro, we all know that you made the history of this liver transplant for HCC. After 50 years, we've got solid data. Now, who do you think liver transplant is for when we talk about ACC? Well, I think that to, to simplify a, a very complex uh, issue, I think that we have two main uh, areas to, to, to emphasize. The first one is that we, after so many years, we know 
that liver transplant is the best therapy for hepatocellular carcinoma. Is the best therapy in early uh, uh, phase in within Milan, for example, but also is uh, a, an interesting, uh, a competitive and uh, best therapy compared to local regional therapy in case of intermediate ACC. Of, unfortunately, we don't have enough donor, and there are also you know problems related to the offer. But uh, uh, this is a, a clear uh, demonstration, and I think that uh, in the in the future, the, uh, and also already included in, for example, in the BCLC guidelines, in the BCLC algorithm update in 2022, uh, the uh, uh, response of intermediate stage, even advanced stage ACC to therapy, to local original therapy, select, may select the best patient uh, uh, within the intermediate stage for a transplantation. And this is something that has, uh, in my opinion, has to be re-emphasized in, uh, in the pathology environment. So you're actually trying to tell us that not all intermediate patients are worth transplanting, but that we should transplant patients who do respond to pre-transplant treatment. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. And the response should be sustained, patient with sustained response, and with the sustained and partial or even complete response uh, could be transplanted with different priority. Of okay. course, patient with a complete response may wait longer or even may avoid transplant sometimes, but the patient uh, with the, within transplant criteria, but with uh, uh, response, uh, that should be transplanted because response is in practice a surrogate of tumor biology, even in patient within the intermediate or advanced stage. Okay, who is not familiar with this, this is called, in transplant jargon, is called downstaging, or in oncological jargon, is called neoadjuvant treatment. Yes. Do we have data to confirm this strategy? Yes, we have a, a trial. We have a prospective randomized trial. It costs a lot of effort to uh, several transplant centers. This trial has been published a, a year and a half ago. Uh, we uh, this uh, was a, a focus on patient beyond Milan, so patient uh, exceeding transplant uh, conventional criteria who were responding to downstaging and remaining uh, in response, so uh, uh, with a sustained response. Uh, these patients were randomized to uh, transplant versus best non-transplant option. And the, the, the trial clearly demonstrates a significant, very significant advantage on patients receiving transplant. So we have a final demonstration that uh, transplantation is an option uh, for patients with a good response to local regional therapies. Okay, but downstaging starting from where? Gonzalo, do you think there should be an upper limit in downstaging patients or whatever tumor could be downstaged and transplanted? I mean, I think that, as Professor Massaferro is uh, mentioning, I think things have really changed, you know, in the last 10 years and mainly in the last maybe five or six. And I, I think we should now be viewing every patient without, obviously, we're talking about patients with no extra hepatic disease and without vascular invasion uh, that have limited disease to the liver. We should not just forget about them. I think we need to, you know, treat these patients. I think transplant teams need to be aware of these patients and then see what happens with response. But I don't think there should be an upper limit 
of on, on size and number to include them into one of these protocols. They're going to get standard of care therapy. I think what's important is to remind our, you know, hepatology colleagues, uh, oncologists to not forget that, you know, transplant is an option and maybe these patients should not be lost in that in that journey. And just to follow up on this, and maybe a question for, for Professor Masaferro and, and, and Professor Line is, you know, traditionally we've thought about downstaging, uh, you know, to bring in patients back to Milan criteria. So a patient has, you know, a 10 centimeter tumor, uh, is having very good response, but now the tumor is six centimeters. Um, and actually, you know, the AFP was 800 and now the AFP is 50. So that patient has not been downstaged to Milan. Do we need to wait to downstage to Milan or actually response is enough? And what kind of response? I would kind of bring that up as a question. Professor Matsafaro, would you like to start with this answer, please? Oh, yes. The, the line of reasoning of Professor Sapisokin is very important because this is, is a complete change with respect to the past. I mean, we probably should stop finding and looking for transplant criteria uh, and look at all comers, as Jackie said. Uh, and, and, and decide on the basis of, of, uh, of response to any kind of therapy. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, we need to look at several factors, patient limitation, organ limitation. Uh, so the, 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 somehow, in my opinion, in my condition, in my place, a, 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 a cap should be placed to, 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 you know, to consider liver transplantation. But in theory, uh, any patient, we have seen patients like that with a complete, uh, very advanced and, uh, you know, complete disasters uh, who had a fantastic response and then could be considered for transplant. Um, um, uh, I, I think this is the, the, the most important thing to say. I mean, it's a complete different way of thinking at transplantation for HCC. Well, Dr. Sapizocin said all comers, but then he said exclude extrahepatic spread, excludes macrovascular invasion and limited intrahepatic spread. So that probably makes it a selected patient. Professor Lina, would you like to add something yeah, on this, please? Just one second, yeah. just to complete with respect to response. Yeah. What he just said, the response uh, Within Milan has been the, 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 the common uh, target for many of many studies. But in our trial, just to give an, a, you know, an, a, an explanation, in our trial, we wanted to have a partial response according to resist criteria. So we did not ask to go back to Milan, Milan. but to show at least a 50% response, which is a surrogate, uh, again, uh, of biology. A more oncological but, but view. We put, a, we put, we put a, a cap to start with. An upper limit. 50% it's a predicted survival and a calculation, a metrotypic calculation. Professor Lina, this question, this issue of the upper limit is very a uh, hot topic. So would you like yeah. to say something on this from your side? Yeah, what I'm, happens on I your share, side? Uh, I, I share Gonzalo's view on this. Uh, we essentially try to, try to downstage uh, any patient. So we're not too concerned, uh, uh, apart from uh, from the two uh, factors like um, microvascular invasion or or obviously extrahepatic disease, then it's no not not a question. But um, other than that, we will try to downstage, and we uh, we do, do as Vincenzo says. We look at the objective response in uh, according to a modified resist. And then uh, I'm also very concerned that the AFP has to show response as well if it's increased. Uh, so we don't look at just radiology. 
Thank you very much. So our hepatology colleagues are very interested in downstaging procedures. In the XXL trial, we did use resection, we did use ablation, we did also use resection um, or local regional treatments, I'm sorry. What about downstaging with immunotherapy? Professor Mazzaferro, can you say something about this? It's very interesting for a pathologist today. Well, this is the next, uh, the next frontier, the next, uh, uh, we need trials, of course. There is no clear information on that, uh, but it is a, a kind of promising perspective. Uh, of course, we, 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 if we achieve downstaging with local regional therapy, we may achieve the same result with the systemic therapy and with, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we may have even better response with respect to extra possible extra hepatic spread. But the, uh, the main issue now is around the correct timing uh, between the last dose of immunotherapy and transplantation, because obviously these are patients, uh, if transplanted very early with very short interval, uh, at risk, at risk of rejection, at risk of liver failure, uh, at risk of death. Uh, there are uh, uh, conditions like that described in the literature, but there are also other reports describing no problem in even transplanting someone who received the therapy the day before, the immunotherapy the day before. So uh, it's very difficult to, to I, I, was, I would be cautious, cautious uh, uh, because this is not a, a, a clear indication, but it is possible. And probably the best way to do is to wait to give uh, some time uh, uh, between the, uh, considering the half-life of the drug, the half-life of the drug you are using, and also the time of, you know, let's say, receptor occupancy uh, of this drug. So, and this more or less goes from three weeks to 60, 80 days now with, with the current medication. So probably this is the interval, the best interval to uh, of, you know, to follow in order when, when we decide to transplant someone who received previous immunotherapy. But it's just a suggestion, it's not nothing uh, 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 strong, in, in no, no evidence of that. Gonzalo, what do you do in Toronto with these patients? How long do you wait if you wait? So, so I think that, you know, I appreciate the question. I mean, we actually are just starting a phase two trial of uh, treating patients with atezolizumab and bevazizumab plus stays in the waiting list. And, you know, our plan is to wait to stop the treatment six weeks before the transplant. That's how the trial is designed. And I completely agree with Professor Masafera. I mean, I think at this point, we can't recommend this. I think there's been reports either way. And I just think we need phase two trials. And I think ours is not going to be the only one. I think there are other phase two trials ongoing or that are about to start. And I think we'll get that safety data on rejection and post-transplant outcomes as a starting point. And I think it's a fascinating field. I think the other thing that we should uh, all think about is that uh, so far, I believe that the data we have, again, is, is, is case serious. And I'm not sure we've all put enough thought using transplant immunologists, oncologists, which drug, which immunosuppression. Like, I think we need a little bit more thought on, on that uh, factor, right? And have other, you know, you know other um, uh, scientists that are not used to maybe helping us directly to, to fill in and, and to help on deciding that, that aspects that I think are going to be key. Okay, but, but our easel friends would like to know then, how can we decide on transplantation after six weeks? Oh, do we have to prioritize these patients or, 
or what are we supposed to do after six weeks? Do we just leave them without treatment or do we retreat them and then wait other six weeks? This well, I mean, I guess the, the way the way we are doing it is that these patients are going to be listed. Then they accumulate their exception points until they get kind of to a meld where we know they're going to be approximately transplanted within the next, you know, three months. And then we'll stop the medication. And, you know, we kind of predict when they're going to be transplanted. Obviously, we don't know for sure, but that's the way we're going to do it. And I think, you know, all of us kind of somehow can predict our waiting time, or at least that's the way we're, we're, we're going to phrase it or, or do it in Toronto. Professor Lina, have you got any experience on transplants after immunotherapy? No, so far not, no. No, no. So this is a very hot topic. Professor Matsuferro, can you answer on the question of eventually prioritizing these patients once the observation time is finished? Well, you know, this is a very complex issue, at least in, in my context here uh, in, in, in Southern Europe, because in transplant oncology, in general, we are going into this kind, more and more into this kind of conditions to decide when the transplant has the best chances to work. So we have patient uh, metastatic for colorectal metastasis who had a good response, who is on chemotherapy, he's young, and is, uh, you know, we, we should do transplant uh, before we, we observe any progression. Then we have the ACC patient responding to therapy and then being stable enough time with the alpha fetal going down. And then we have this uh, new uh, area of immunotherapy. And maybe with cholangio, of course, with the perihidal cholangio after chemo and radiotherapy again. There are a lot of uh, indication in transplant oncology because you are, uh, you know, connecting with, with, with the oncology world and with the radiotherapy and chemo and biology, etc. And you measure all the these parameters in which the people and, and the consensus of the other colleague will ask you to transplant someone within a certain frame. Uh, and this is, this is a challenge in, uh, in at least with cadaveric donation. Uh, and um, uh, most likely we will have to work a lot on this in, in the next future. Thank you. I think we could carry on the whole day talking about this, but uh, we have to move on. And thank you for kicking off the topic of uh, cholangiocarcinoma. Gonzalo is a soldier, but he's one of the persons who actively most contributed on the literature on transplantation on cholangiocarcinoma. And now liver transplantation is actually considered like an option for this particular uh, oncological indication, is effectively an option. Gonzalo, there are different behaviors to keep for small intrahepatic cholangios versus uh, diffused large multinodular. Can you please tell us the difference and also add on what to do in case of the presence of cirrhosis, which we know is a feature which is very often correlated to cholangiocarcinomas. So give us an idea of today's scenario. Yeah, th thanks very much. So yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, I, I, I truly believe, and I think we have enough uh, data that there's kind of you know, two different scenarios where we where we see uh, intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. So one is, you know, cirrhotic patients that are getting surveillance and, and we find these nodules that we all see and, and you know, the features are not clear in, in CTs or MRIs that these patients have hepatocerocarcinoma are found to have intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas. And these are cirrhotic patients. Um, and we actually made the observation now years ago and, and, and were able to validate it. And, and others have been able to validate that those patients that have small 
intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas, and it's always been, you know, very small ones, smaller than two centimeters. There is more data now showing that maybe it's less than three centimeters. And these are patients that were transplanted with the thought that they had a parasitic carcinoma, and these were misdiagnosed and actually were cholangios actually do very well. These patients had been, had been always been, you know, a complete contraindication for transplant that those patients with early cholangio actually can have five-year survivals, you know, up to 70%, 75% with recurrence risk, you know, around 15%. So I think very good treatment options. The other reality is that we are all, you know, and there's epidemiological data seeing that we're seeing more and more of these uh, cholangio patients in cirrhotics. So I think, you know, the current evidence, and this just came up in the ASALD guidelines for, for PSC and cholangio, is that if you have a small cholangiocarcinoma and you can resect the patient, obviously that's always going to be the treatment of choice. We're talking about cirrhotics. But if you can't resect that patient and the patient has early or very early cholangio, usually small single cholangios, transplantation is a very good option. We actually have a prospective trial that has been, you know, challenging to accrue, but I think there's more data. There's there's a very nice study from Paul Bruce showing exactly the same. There's a paper that just came out from the U.S. registry showing, you know, over 100 patients or 150 patients with single uh, cholangial, less than three centimeters, uh, with very good outcomes after transplant. So I think it's been more uh, widely accepted that small patients, cirrhotic patients, not resectable with small cholangios can do very well after transplant. As you were suggesting, there's the other distinct population that, you know, we all, all, all of us here as surgical oncologists, we see that are these patients that have, you know, healthy livers, very large mass that usually grows behind the cava invading the three veins or multifocal cholangio. And I think there's fascinating, you know, advancements, uh, especially in the systemic therapy uh, arena, in the genomic sphere of these tumors and finding mutations that can be targetable. So I think there is more data showing that, as we, as, as we were just discussing for colorectal and for HCC, that if you can treat these patients either with, you know, local therapies plus systemic in many cases, and if these patients have sustained disease, and we're always talking about patients with no extrahepatic disease, you know, transplantation, which as, as, as Professor Lina mentioned, will just be in this case a total hepatectomy, may help these patients. I actually think we need to be cautious at this point. The main data comes from a combined effort from MD Anderson and Methodist in the US with around 18 patients. And, you know, the data, you know, is, is still very preliminary. In Toronto, we do have a trial uh, transplanting patients uh, as such with, with living donors. Again, they have to be very stable on, on systemic therapies, but certainly something that's gonna evolve in the next years for two reasons. One is because we're seeing two patients more patients, sorry, and two, because I think, you know, the, our oncology colleagues are finding more therapies for these patients with cholangio, and we're going to see more patients that are, we're going to be called patients that have been stable in systemic therapies for two years, and they're still not resectable. Should we do a total hepatectomy? And I think the answer will be yes in selected patients. So when we have in front a patient, non-serotic patient, which uh, large or multinodular, well, large actually, cholangio, uh, do we have to think immediately to transplant this patient or do we have to think about chemotherapy first? So, Yeah, I mean, I think that we're, we're the field. I mean, the, the way I see when I see these patients in clinic, I think the key is first 
to make sure they don't have extra hepatic disease. So many of these patients have lymph node metastasis. So I think that's something that's important to clarify from the get-go. I think there's more data to suggest and you know, in Toronto, we still can do it. So I would like to hear what you guys do to do next generation sequencing of these patients who so have a biopsy and actually sequence them. And I think these patients need to undergo systemic therapy and in some cases add local original. If they're stable, I think, again, we should make sure that our oncology colleagues or hepatology colleagues don't forget about the option of transplant because many of these clinics have patients like this that are, you know, slowly progressing or are very stable for a year and no one really thinks about transplant. And I think they need to be seen back in some of the transplant clinics for assessment. Professor Mazzafaro, don't you think this is a downstaging also for Colando? It's practically what we're doing for HCC, very similar to? Well, um, this is a completely different disease, but uh, the principle is uh, the same. We, we just heard from metastatic to primaries and now with cholangio and other primary tumor. The response to non-transplant strategies is a selection tool. It's a fantastic selection tool for, you know, giving the patient a chance to be transplanted, to be discussed at least, uh, obviously within trials, within uh, prospective protocols, uh, rather than just an attempt. We are very much fascinated of single large uh, cholangio, intrahepatic cholangio rather than multifocal diffused uh, tumor. And with the block original therapy, I would also consider the radiotherapy uh, is, a, is a very effective uh, uh, therapy with, uh, in combination with chemo. And this is, has been also demonstrated in some patients in a retrospective evaluation from uh, in the US, in which they demonstrated if they had local regional radiotherapy and, in, and chemotherapy, uh, those patients receiving all these three uh, conditions and were transplanted had a fantastic survival. Obviously, is a selection. is is a progressive selection, a selection bias on what uh, you want to uh, demonstrate. We don't know the intention to treat for this uh, area, but it is a very, uh, a very promising perspective, in my, in my view. So, actually, you're again stating the fact that response to treatment is one of the most driving selection tools we have. Professor Lina, would you like to add a last comment on this? Yeah, I, I totally agree with both Gonzalo and Mitzel. So, and we ha also have a trial going. Uh, we have currently done um, uh, two cases, uh, the third one coming up now. And we biopsy every case. Uh, we give them, uh, they go into a sequencing trial uh, on multiple genes and, and uh, they get the treatment accordingly. And uh, we look at response uh, observation of 12 months before we transplant them. And so NGS far, and sequencing is guiding you how? Yeah, well, well, if there is a target uh, that they haven't tried, they, they will be given the option. So far, it hasn't really translated to any concrete, but at least we have the option of doing that. Yeah. Gonzalo, gene sequencing and GS, how do you approach that in your daily clinical practice? Yeah, so as I was mentioning, we, we actually struggle. And, and, and the problem is that it takes weeks and sometimes months to get that sequencing mm. back. But I think as, as Dr. Lini mentioned, I think uh, you know, we, we, we should be considering this for potential targeted therapies. I think we need to remember that only 10 to 20% are actually have one of these targetable mutations. But I think we're still far 
from being able to use any of these therapies uh, in most patients, but I think it's it's obviously very valuable. And the field is evolving, right? So I think if we get, you know, I think we we need to be sequencing these patients for, you know, what we're going to see in the in the future. Okay. Yeah, uh, just, can I make a question? Uh, just a question to the other. Very fast, Professor. Please. Very fast. We do you, do you trust lymph node uh, staging ahead of uh, any consideration of transplant for this patient? We do. And we are, that's why we try to see this patient from the get-go and the, do EUS with, with biopsy. And if they're negative, then we continue, but we do an expiratory laparotomy a week before the transplant. And again, we're doing living donors here, and that gives you the opportunity to, to uh, kind of plan the surgery. And we do uh, direct biopsies of nodes, uh, and we would not transplant them if they're positive. Thank you very much. I'm really afraid we have to finish now. I'm very grateful also from Easel for giving us some time. Thank you very much.